You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Happy Easter Monday. And I want to welcome you to this Monday night live stream for Theology Mom. I am Krista Bontrager. I want to thank you for watching tonight. And I'm going to be doing a conversation tonight about loving our neighbor in the midst of a pandemic. And loving our neighbor might sound like a fairly easy topic, but as I've been reflecting on this the last few weeks, it's actually quite complicated. So I want to share some thoughts. Okay, point number one that I want to make is, yes, we should love our neighbor. Like, that's a thing. You know, we... We might take that for granted, but I think that that's the foundation of everything we're going to say tonight is in the context of loving our neighbor. But the big question that I find that people don't often talk about is how are we defining love? What does that really look like? It's a nebulous idea. And so first I had this historical example of Christian love that I wanted to share It's from actually the Calvin College website from their worship department. And I thought this was an interesting article that a friend of mine posted, who's a pastor a couple weeks ago, pandemics and public worship throughout history. And what's interesting to me about this article, and I'm going to scroll down here a little bit, is is the importance of, of the church, you know, knowing how to love our neighbor. But here's a timeline of some, some hit, some historical events where the church faced similar situations. There was a plague in Ethiopia that erupted around Easter of 250 AD, and it reached Rome and spread throughout the Middle East the following year. Many people died in this plague, and it is recorded by one of the fathers. Um, And I think that it's important to understand that we are not the first people to to experience pandemics uh, or plagues, if you will. There's a little quote here from around this time from one of the bishops of Alexandria. And Alexandria was in North Africa. It was one of the ancient centers of Christianity. It says, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another, nursing and curing others. And later in the The letter he writes, at the first onset of the disease, the healthy pushed the sick away and fled from their dearest, hoping to avert the spread of the contagion and the fatal disease. And that's sort of the the Sophie's choice that we are involved in now. We're we're quarantined at home. But what happens if somebody comes home and and has this? And, you know, how do we handle that? Later in the medieval period, there was the Black Death uh, in the 1300s. And Christians faced more challenges, and you can read those quotes, but we're going to scroll through here so you can get a feeling for this. Um, 150 years later, there was another Black Death. There's another one a few years later during the time of Luther, during the time of Calvin. There was a smallpox epidemic during the time of Jonathan Edwards. There's some quotes related to Charles Spurgeon and his era. Uh, the flu epidemic of 1918. And then there's some really great quote I read on the the show a few weeks ago from C.S. Lewis about the threat of nuclear war. But I just want to bring up these quotes to, to show that 
we need to put some historical context. Like there's some wisdom that we can get from the past about what love looks like and what Christians have historically done. And so in, as we're thinking about what love looks like, we want to be informed by history that, that Christians don't abandon love just because there's a pandemic happening, but we're going to have to wrestle with what does love look like? So right now, as we're thinking about this cultural moment, what love seems to be looking like in the recent past of the few weeks is that quarantining is being put out there as a form of loving our neighbors, loving in particular the vulnerable, those with underlying health conditions, those with severe asthma problems and anti-inflammatory compromises in, in autoimmune compromises and this sort of thing. So we're all quarantining for the sake in, in a way of loving our neighbors. But I'm also have some concerns that I'm seeing this phrase of loving our neighbor kind of being spread like peanut butter over every problem and situation. Now, I don't know about you, but I really like peanut butter. So I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> I do enjoy it. I will just get a spoonful right out of the jar as a snack. And I like to put it on my, my apples. If I'm eating apples, I, I do enjoy good peanut butter. I like to put it on tortillas. And peanut butter is a good thing. Uh, love is a good thing. But when I start seeing things called love, and then I start, I've started standing back and thinking, okay, how are we defining this? And we need to balance loving our neighbor with wisdom toward the rest of God's law. Because as I've said many, many times in my teaching, love is not gospel. Love is law. And God defines what love is. And the way that we, one of the critical ways that we figure out what love looks like is by looking in the law. That many of the Mosaic laws give us case laws or examples of how God wants us to love him and love our neighbor. Otherwise, love is like this very nebulous, almost meaningless word or emotion. And so I'm trying to figure out how these things go together and, and how do we apply God's definition of love, not our emotions, not what seems right to us, not in a subjective opinion, but what does God's law have to say about what love is and how can we balance love and wisdom? How do we balance you know, the Mosaic law with the Proverbs. How do we put those, maybe balance isn't the right word, but how do we bring them together? You know, the Proverbs tell us how to practically work out our lives and gives us all this practical wisdom. How can we fuse those together? Because what I'm thinking is that love is way more complicated than this just seems right to me. It's way more complicated than a subjective emotion or an opinion and I'm going to sort of unfold what I see as some of those complications as the video goes along. Okay, so point number one was, yes, we should love our neighbor. Point number two is pandemics are a normal part of the rhythm of human history. They happen about every 100 years. And so even though this is new for us, right now in, in America, 
and really globally, there's been a few sort of pandemics in the past, but they haven't had the scope and the magnitude that we've experienced with this one. But it's it's important to understand that pandemics and the plague and, and this sort of thing, this is a normal part of the rhythm of human history. Pandemics happen. It's just part of what we experience. And aren't we blessed that the last one was just about a hundred years ago? It was the Spanish flu, as they call it. And it was, you know, um, it was a time of, of very similar to what we're going through now. And people would bring home the flu to their family and, and we have a much more herd immunity to flu. People still get the flu, but by and large, it's cycled through us for a few generations now, and we have a lot more immunity to the flu. But the thing is, is that pandemics aren't weird. What we're going through is not unusual. It is unusual for us, but it is not unusual. It is a normal part of the rhythm of human history. In fact, I think that what may be so kind of unsettling for many of us is that we have so much medical affluence in the West that even two to three percent death rates seem very high. That seems very panic inducing for us when we hear about the death numbers and, and the death tolls of now it's it's surpassed, you know, heart disease and the daily death count. But the thing is, is that we could reverse those numbers and say, hey, if you get this, you have a 97% chance of recovery. Those are pretty good odds. But because we have such a high level of medical affluence and aren't we blessed in the providence of God to live in this moment where we can enjoy that affluence, two to 3% death rates seem high. And you see all these really scary numbers and scary maps and it's it's like, oh, it's, it's it's terrible. And it is terrible. And the loss of every life is terrible. But when we compare it to how we have fared in pandemics in the past, we are much more positioned to react quickly and with amazing affluence and technology to help curb the number of deaths. So the pandemic is not likely the end of the world. But these changes may definitely lead uh, or these events may lead to changes in our world. And, and a lot of that remains to be seen. So my first point is, yes, we should love our neighbor. And then number two was, yes, pandemics are a normal part of human history. Number three is an important response to pandemics, I think, from a Christian perspective. And that is that in the Christian worldview, Death is not the end. Death is not the final answer. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to you, okay? It's a horrible thing, and every life is a loss, and I don't want to minimize that at all. But in the broader scope of our worldview, we have to understand that death is not the end. Death is a gateway to judgment. It's a time of Jesus separating the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. And there, there is a, a conversation that we can have about that. But it is not the end. Now, our culture is largely secular. 
and it operates on naturalistic assumptions. And so when you hear the mayor of New York City say things like, if we, even if we take all of these precautions and only one life is saved, it's worth it. It's such an interesting worldview statement to me. Because it's like, well, why is one world, why is one life worth it? I know why it's worth it from a Christian perspective, because people are valuable. People are created in the image of God. But also we balance that with the idea that death is not the end. Death is not something that is the worst thing that can happen to us as Christians. But this is why we want to preach the gospel. And this is why we want to think about how we can help our neighbors think about their soul. The way that our culture is responding to these needs, I think, is largely presupposes naturalism. It's how do we take care of their physical needs? And yes, physical needs are important. Food is important. Medical attention, important. I don't want to minimize that. But we are not merely bodies. We are not merely a physical person. We are also a soul and a spirit. And so as Christians, we don't want to lose sight of that. Loving our neighbor needs to include helping them with their soul. And I'm going to have some more soul considerations as as we unpack these things Because I think that how our culture is dealing with things is largely from the presupposition of naturalism, that the the main thing we have to address is people's physical needs. If we're going to love our neighbor in a distinctly Christian way, we have to think about people's souls and what they need. So when we think about the Christian worldview um, about death, I just want to make a really quick point here. Um, that we as Christians, we believe that we live in a two creation model. Um, We live in this current creation of three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. That's what our current reality is, is the heavens and the earth. But we look forward to the new creation, the next creation, as I've called it here on this slide, the new heavens and the new earth, where life will be different. And there will be no more suffering. In fact, in Revelation chapter 21, um, there's this description of the new heavens and new earth to show how it's different. It says in verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Behold, I am making everything new. So what this means is that There's going to be a whole lot of things that are present in this creation that are not present in the new creation. And so in that sense, Christians need to live with the future in mind. We need to live in the now and the not yet. And and in the now reality of the physical world, we, we live in this physical world. We have these physical concerns, but we don't want to live in a posture that treats death Like it's the most important thing. It's the most important thing to be avoided. Those Christians who lived centuries ago ago and and they were wrestling with the plague, they were often the ones who would care for the sick. They were often the ones who would help the dying and they would put aside their concerns of of getting sick. And so we don't want to be reckless. We want to exercise sound judgment, but we also don't want to be so guided by fear of death that we think that that is the thing that we have to avoid at all costs. 
because we are a people who live with the future in mind, that we know that we live in two creations. And in fact, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says this, that those who have fallen asleep, they will come alive again at the end. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And those of us who are left, who are alive, will be caught up to, in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air. So we want to live in, in a mindset and in, a, in, a, in our words that, yes, this physical reality is important. I'm not trying to deny that. But at the same time that this, this world is not all that there is. So ultimately, I think it's important to understand that God is in charge of our lives. Catching this disease is not random. It's not random chance. All of our days are written in God's book, it says in Psalm 139. So we can't add one moment, one day to our life. And so we have to walk in a way of trusting the Lord. We don't want to walk in fear. We, again, we don't. I'm not suggesting that we be reckless about it, but we have to find some balance between the fear and not being reckless, being careful, but not living as if death is the ultimate thing that, that we are afraid of. Christians stand in this tension of, of wanting to not be reckless, using wisdom and sober judgment, but also having confidence that this life is not the end of everything and that we have a hope of heaven. And so it makes sense to me why, why people in, in many of our culture are terrified of dying and they're wanting to take extreme measures to not get sick. But we as Christians want to counteract that and, and point to the eternal hope that is available and care for people's souls. Part of loving them, if all we do is just wear masks and gloves and stay away and quarantine, we have only addressed the people's physical needs. We have not addressed their spiritual needs or their soul care. Okay, number four is that quarantining the sick is actually a biblical idea. And I haven't seen very much about this in the public conversation. So I want to bring up this point. Quarantining is actually a biblical idea. There are many laws about quarantining the sick. For example, in Leviticus chapter 13, there's a whole chapter of laws. And I'm not going to read these, but I am going to scroll down to the end here just to give you an example. Verse 45 and 46, where it talks about that the person wearing clothes needs to identify themselves. So they wear torn clothes so you can see them a long ways away. And they're supposed to yell out unclean uh, as long as they have the disease and they must live alone and they must live outside the camp, outside the city, if you will. And so there are precautions in place in the Mosaic law of Quarantining. Quarantining is not something that modern medicine figured out. Quarantining is actually a biblical concept. In 2 Corinthians or 2 Chronicles, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles 26:21, King Uzziah gets leprosy and he has to live in a separate house and he's banned from going in the temple. This is a practical example of how these laws from Leviticus were lived out. We kind of see a form of social distancing, physical distancing in Luke chapter 17. Jesus comes across the path of a leper 
And it says there in verse 12, as he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him and they stood at a distance and they called out Jesus, master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he tells them to go to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And that's what they were supposed to do under the Levitical law. Jesus basically healed them and tells them to obey the law because the, the priests will then verify the miracle. But they're, they're showing a form of quarantining, a form of physical distancing for the safety of others. And so they would yell out in, in that way. What's different in our case is that we are quarantining the healthy as a prevention. And this is where we are starting to see some very real challenges And I think that um, in the biblical concept of quarantining, we see them quarantining the sick. But what we are experiencing is a quarantining of the healthy. And that's not necessarily bad, but it certainly is raising some complications. And so I want to point that out as a significant difference between what we are doing and what God's law requires uh, for, for people to do. Now, number five is that humans are designed by God to live in community. Human contact is not an optional extra in our lives. I mean, do we really understand that this is part of our theology as Christians? This is part of having a robust Christian worldview. Humans were not designed by God, to live in isolation. This way of living is not sustainable. And the reason people are having mental health breakdowns, in part, is because we are living in an unnatural way. Living alone is not natural. Having no human contact, not getting hugs, not having handshakes, not greeting one another at church in a physical way, this is not natural. It goes against our created design. If you have ever tried to change a tire with a hammer, you know that a hammer is not designed to change a tire. It will not work. When we are living in an unnatural way, unnatural things are going to happen. And that is what we are seeing. And I am so concerned about the elderly, the people who are struggling because they now there's the, the idea that we have to be alone and they have no physical contact. There's, and it's not natural not to receive hugs. It's not natural. It's not natural to not shake hands with people. You know, there's this, this verse in, in Romans chapter 16 about greeting one another with a holy kiss. Um, and people who see it's such a throwaway verse, but this is the, the, the long Christian tradition of of fellowship that that is still practiced in some churches. I mean, that this is part of their cultural practice of greeting one another with a holy kiss. Even the men greet each other with a holy kiss. I mean, there is this idea of a family when it comes to the, the body of Christ. We are brothers and sisters. We are spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers. And so it is not natural for us to not be gathering, okay? This is part of what it means to be a Christian. The word church, ekklesia, in Greek means assembly. The whole idea of the church is that we assemble. 
We are the gathered ones. We gather and then we go out. We are the sent ones, but we do both. We gather and we're sent. But if we're only doing one or the other, that is not natural. And so we are living in this, this very unnatural, weird way that we are not functioning the way that God designed us to function. Okay, my fifth point is that humans are designed by God to live in community. I, I kind of am starting to have some concerns about all this virtual church business. Living virtually works best when you have a pre-existing face-to-face relationship with, with those people. I'm not saying that it's not possible to work and, and live virtually, but I just don't think that there's a substitute for the true face-to-face contact. Um, that living image to image in your small groups and watching your pastor preach on the screen, I'm not convinced that that is the same thing as going to church. But I am wondering how this is reprogramming us. I'm wondering at the end of this, many of the smaller churches are going to end up closing because people will be so conditioned to just watching church on their television in their pajamas. Why should I bother getting out of bed and going to a church and seeing people? But the the thing is, is that we are designed for community. I have no idea how you engage in things like church discipline virtually. If you never know these people, you don't see them very often and you don't have genuine like relationships with them. What does that begin to look like? What will be the long-term impact of all this virtual church hopping that we're doing now? Will we have the same connections with these people and seeing them as a spiritual family? Will there be rootedness? How, yeah, how will we engage in church discipline? I'm not sure that this is altogether healthy. Now, look, you know, in the middle of a pandemic where it's a temporary situation and we have two or three weeks of virtual church, I get that. But they're starting to make it sound like this could go on for months. I mean, the the president's guy, what's his name? Fucci? Fauci? I mean, he's talking like he wants the quarantine to last for 18 months. I'm not sure what the long-term impact of that is going to be. And I'm not even sure that that's biblical. I think we're going to get into some other really messy conversations with that. So when we're talking about loving our neighbor and what the church looks like and how we care for one another, it's the virtual church situation is okay as a temporary Band-Aid, but it is not a solution that can be sustainable for very long and for churches to be healthy and for Christians to be healthy. I don't know if that's really loving our neighbor. Let's go on to number six here. God designed humans to work. Wanting to return to work is not a conservative issue. I think it's a human issue. God has designed us to work. If we're going to live in the way that God designed us to be, it is to work. Work is not part of the fall. Work is part of our pre-fall design. Adam and Eve were were told to work the garden and to multiply and fill the earth, to rule and to reign on the earth. So when we see things like unemployment coming up, this is just a snippet from the Wall Street Journal last week, that unemployment benefits 
the filing for those are way up. That's not a, merely a physical problem. That's a soul problem too. That's a spiritual problem. Not being able to work is a problem in our soul. It damages us. And so if we're going to talk about loving our neighbor, we have to understand that when people say, I want to get back to work, it's not because they're just radical Republicans and they want to be reckless. I think they're speaking from a place of deep human longing that we are designed to work. And being in quarantine is not natural. What we are going through right now is not natural. This is not how God designed us to work. Another thing I want to point out with this whole work situation is how do we balance loving our our poor neighbors with the sick and the vulnerable neighbors? Because this quarantine situation, this is one of the major concerns that I have, is that this preventative quarantine model that we're we're engaging in right now, we're not quarantining the sick, we're quarantining everybody, including the healthy, most of which are healthy. It has the potential, this model has the potential to decimate the poor. Now, in my level of affluence, I can survive this situation for a while. My husband is not working because he has a party business. Nobody wants to have parties right now. Nobody's allowed to gather. But we can still survive for a while with our level of affluence. I'm still working. But the poor, the working poor cannot survive this. And... I am very concerned that people don't really understand the impact that all of this has for the working poor. And so we have to balance these concerns. I can't just be focused on these neighbors over here, the the, the vulnerable and the weak and the potentially sick. When there's these neighbors over here that are in the working poor, how do I love these people? And how do I love everybody? Because work is an expression of a universal human longing. Can you kind of start to see how just the phrase, let's love our neighbors, becomes not quite so simple? It's actually very complicated. So this brings me back, you know, this reground us to our, our number one point that we had in the beginning. Yes, we should love our neighbor. But how do we find that golden mean between loving the medically vulnerable, loving the poor, and not forcing people to live in unnatural, isolated conditions? How do we think about loving the elderly? Yes, we want to love them and not let them get sick, but we don't want to have them be so isolated that that debilitates their mental health too. So this is is very, very tricky. And this brings me to my seventh point, which is some concerns I have about the government and its relationship to the church. Number seven, yes, Christians should obey the government. And I want to make it very clear. I want to look at Romans 13 again tonight. I know I've mentioned this a lot lately, but we should obey the government. We don't obey the government simply because it's holy. We obey the government, even if it's corrupt. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that the government, whoever rebels against authority in verse 2, is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. 
Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Verse six, this is all you, also why you pay taxes. The authorities are God's servants. I want you to notice the language here. God doesn't tell us, hey, you need to obey the government if they're holy, if they're doing the right things. Now, what the government is supposed to be doing is restraining evil, punishing the guilty, protecting the vulnerable, protecting the righteous. Do they do that? Not always. Far from it. But we are to look at the government as being over us, as, a, as God's servant. He calls him God's minister. His deacon is the same word. And so when we think about John 19, since we just went through Holy Week this past week, this is from Jesus's trial before Pilate. He says, you know, Pilate's really trying to help Jesus and, and get him out of this situation. And Jesus, or Pilate says, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answers in verse 11, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Where does Pilate, who was a very corrupt person, we know this from history. Where did his power come from? It's from God. God puts kings in power. And if we think about this, there's a concept called sphere sovereignty. This idea of sphere sovereignty, it's an idea in Reformed theology that I find very helpful. I think that we have to understand that there's kind of three major spheres of our society. There's the family, there's the church, and there's the government. The family is, in, is the man and the woman, and, and God is over all three of these. God puts these things together. God puts these, these, these spheres in power. God appoints the family, the man and the woman, to have children, to multiply, fill the earth, and to rule and to reign, and to instruct their children, according to Deuteronomy 6. So the government's sphere is to punish the guilty. They collect taxes. They help to keep peace, ideally, so the gospel can go out. The church's sphere is, is it, the assembly of the church to preach the gospel, to go out into all the world and to enact church discipline. So when we think about Romans 13, that's good. We want to think about Romans 13, but that's only the sphere of the government. We don't want to, again, spread that like peanut butter over everything. I'm seeing a lot of this on social media. People are like, obey the government, obey the government, obey the government. Yes, we should obey the government. And sometimes there's Acts 4 moments where we disobey the government, which I think is my point number eight, that sometimes Christians should disobey the government because in our sphere of sovereignty, we are the church gathered and we are the church sent out. And sometimes it is an Acts 4 moment. When we think about these spheres, we have to understand what each of them are in charge of. So we, we don't have the government see the danger when the government comes in and redefines the family. 
or the government comes in and wants to impose its instruction on our children. That is the sphere of the family. That is, that is what the family is supposed to do. But we don't also don't want to have overreach of the church ruling the government. That's not okay. And then we don't want the government to rule the church. That's not okay. This idea of sphere sovereignty helps organize our thoughts a little bit, I think, about why some things are starting to feel like government encroachment, like something has gone wrong, and I'm not really sure what. And so this idea of sphere sovereignty, I hope, will begin to help help you organize your thoughts a bit. Last week, there was a pastor who was arrested in Tampa, Florida, for defying the orders. And this guy, Rodney Howard Brown, very controversial pastor, part of the Word of Faith movement, and, and was really kind of trying to stick it to the government about meeting together. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily the best approach, and I'm not concerned with his theology. What does concern me here is what is now being done in the name of public safety and what precedent this is setting. After that arrest, now things are really starting to escalate. That was kind of the first big national story. In my own county last week, it became a $1,000 fine and 90 days in jail for gathering as a church, even a drive-through church. And this is the, the, the order that talks about that in my county. And it's indefinite. There, it's, there's no deadline of when this is going to go revert back to what it was. And, and even if you leave your house, you're supposed to wear a mask. But they specifically mention drive-through churches and that, that you can't do that and that it is a $1,000 fine and 90 days in jail or both. So the, the point that I'm trying to raise here is that now we're starting to see situations where it seems like the church is not allowed to do its most essential function, which is to assemble. Now, I'm not suggesting we should do it recklessly. Like, could we assemble and still be safe? assembling in our cars, assembling six feet apart, assembling with masks. Like, could we abide by the CDC guidelines and still be the church gathered? Could we perform our essential functions as a church? When we start thinking about this, when we're in a place where it is indefinite, the churches are not allowed to gather. And I'm going to go out here and I'm going to say, I do think that Again, the issue of naturalism is playing into these decisions because think about what is being decided as an essential function. Liquor stores are open. Hardware stores are open. Grocery stores, we understand, got to eat. But Planned Parenthood, Monique went did a search yesterday. Our local Planned Parenthood here in our city was open yesterday on Easter Sunday. And yet in our county, we couldn't have a drive through church. And I don't know what the, the functional difference is to me going to Sonic in the next town and sitting in a drive through stall and getting food. I don't know what the functional difference is between Sonic and a drive through church. It seems to me that they're functionally the same thing. When I look at the exterior part, but what is it that makes it non-essential? To me, this starts looking like 
the worldview of naturalism. We're overlooking the reality that people are designed to worship. People are designed with souls. And one of the most fundamental things that humans have been created to do is to worship. And again, I'm going to go back to my earlier statements about this whole virtual church situation. I have real concerns about switching to a mode where all I'm doing is watching some guy preach on a screen. I mean, I get it if this is a two or three week kind of interim emergency situation, no problem. But many Christians don't seem bothered by this at all. And that itself is bothersome to me because I don't see how looking at a screen is the same functional thing as gathering as a church, which we have done for thousands of years and is in the definition of our name, that ecclesia is to assemble, is the assembly. Yes, we are the church sent out. We should be the church sent out. We go out and we preach the gospel, but we are also the church gathered. And when we can't gather properly, when we can't see each other, hug each other, shake each other's hands, see, check in on each other, how are we doing? And how in the world do you engage in church discipline? How do you engage in shepherding somebody's soul properly if you never see them? I think that this is, it starts encroaching on the sphere sovereignty issue of, of the government overreach is what we call it. When I'm just trying to explain theologically how to think about the government overreach issue so that you're not just reacting emotionally, but you have a theological foundation for how to think about it. Could there be a way to love our neighbor, our poor neighbors? Is there a way that we can help people get back to work? Is there a way that we can love the elderly and not just shutter them off because they're vulnerable? Is there a way that we can love our neighbor and still touch them? Is there a way that we can balance freedom and government control? Is there a way that we can gather as the church and do it within the CDC guidelines? I want us to be careful about just rolling over for this and just saying, oh, it's on virtual church. It's all the same. And it's just, it's just, I sit in church and I, I watch and, watch people up on the stage. And that's the same thing as me watching on the screen. If that's what you think church is, then like we need to have a different conversation about what is the church. And maybe that's a video I need to do. But if you think that that's what going to church is, then we need to have a different conversation about what is the church because virtual church and the biblical church are not the same things. But what precedents have now been set in the name of love and safety? When we start calling everything love, like, like here's some, some scenarios that I can think of. Will Christians be asked to reduce their bandwidth use for essential services in the name of love? You don't want to taint your Christian witness. So you should throttle back your church's use of bandwidth because that's how we love our neighbor. Okay. Will we be forced under compulsory vaccines in order to control our movements and gatherings. People can't gather in more than 10 people if all the people haven't been vaccinated. Okay, will that be seen as loving our neighbor? 
Could children be removed from the sake for from the home for the sake of health and safety? And that will be considered loving our neighbor. And can you see how almost anything can be spun into a cry for love of our neighbor? And it almost becomes like silly putty. Like it can just blend into anything. You ever you remember silly putty as a kid? And it, when, when, it, when it becomes like that, that's when I think love loses its biblical meaning. We need a more principled and biblical approach to defining love. Because you see, love in God's economy is voluntary. It's not compulsory. And so there's a big difference between voluntarily doing things and being under compulsion to do things. Compulsion and love are not the same things. So yes, we can love our neighbors through vaccinations. I think that's actually a legitimate and thoughtful point. But what happens when it becomes compulsory and we can't gather with more than 10 people if everybody doesn't have vaccinations, that's not the same thing as voluntary love. And so we've got to think this through a little bit. We can't just be slapping everything with the, with the label of love. I really wish that there were more Christian ethicists who are stepping forward and getting a voice. So this is kind of my, my call <laughs> to the Christian ethicists, like help us. Help us understand and think through these complicated issues. We need some really sound, practical, biblical ethicists to step forward in in Christian evangelicalism and talk about what it means to love our neighbor. What I've done tonight is just ask a lot of questions and try to lay some worldview groundwork that I see in play. But We need some people who are thinking about these things. Where are you? Ethicists, please help us. Because we cannot continue to spread the the phraseology of just love your neighbor as yourself, like peanut butter over everything and over this entire quarantine situation, because it is complicated. It is way more complex than that. Anyways, I do hope that you have found something helpful here and I look forward to more interaction about this. And again, some of these ideas are things I'm trying on. Some of these things are things I'm still wrestling through. The opinions expressed here may or may not be those of my husband, my employer, or my church, or my pastor. But I am trying to share with you some of the things that are going through my head the last couple of weeks and just asking some questions of like, hey, loving our neighbor sounds pretty, But it is actually quite complicated because we don't want to selectively love these neighbors while neglecting these neighbors. And we've got some complicated issues to work through. So I do hope that you found this helpful. And I do look forward to your comments. Thanks so much for watching. Bye-bye. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.